Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Wisdom, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Alright, briefly I want to comment on question 48, articles 3 and 4. And then go back to question 46, probably articles 6, 7, and 8. Let's look at the inner essence of sacrifice. This is instructive for our Christian life and for understanding also the mystery of what we might call the victory of God on the cross or the victory of Christ's love. The Apostle says, He delivered Himself up for us an oblation and a sacrifice to God for an odor of sweetness. Now, of course, you know, we could... Sorry? Oh, yeah, my, my bad. Uh, question 48, Article 3. Question 48, Article 3, whether Christ's passion operated by way of sacrifice. Now, I mean, of course, one thing we need to be aware of, you know, here historically, just real in a realistic way, is sacrifices take place for the Jews of Jesus' time in the temple. And it's the killing of animals, it's the burning of the cadavers of animals, it's the burning of the uh, plants. I mean, there is a notion of spiritual sacrifice, rend your garments, rend your hearts, not your garments, etc. But suddenly you have the New Testament talking about Christ as a sacrifice. That's odd, you know. Now there is some precedent of the notion of martyrs as having a kind of offering them lives as a sort of sacrifice. There's ways this was prepared theologically in the Old Testament. It's interesting to try to look at that. But the point is, in the New Testament you have this very strong interiorization, or eternalization of the notion of sacrifice as the act of obedience of Christ, his spiritual love but even unto death, and therefore also his physical death as a sacrificial dimension of his, uh, as a dimension of his sacrifice. A sacrifice, this is the corpus of our, uh, question 48, article 3, a sacrifice properly so called is something done for that honor which is properly due to God. Now there he does use a notion of honor in order to appease him. And so it is said, that, uh, and, and hence it is that Augustine says, and this is a very famous text, the most famous text in Christian history on sacrifice, the City of God, book 10, I think it's chapter 14. A true sacrifice is every good work done in order that we may cling to God in holy fellowship, yet refer to that consummation of happiness wherein we can be truly blessed. But as it is added in the same place, Christ offered himself up in the Passion. I, I think that's the right passage in uh, City of God. I think it's Book 10. Uh, in any case, it's the same theme. It's where Augustine basically says the inner essence of all, all true sacrifice, as opposed to idolatry or Pharisaic performances, etc., is love. Love that leads us to self offering. Which is, of course, very significant because it means both in the physical offerings of the Old Testament and in one's daily offerings of any kind whatsoever, whatever is done out of love is a form of sacrifice. I mean, he takes a kind of maximalist extension view, but also a deeply intensive interiorization. Right? Because it's what's most interior, love, it is the principal sacrifice that is most maximal or most extensive. It touches upon everything. 
And this is the underlying, as it were, motor or mechanism or deepest inclination of Christ's passion. He lives his passion out of love through charity. This voluntary, he continues, Aquinas does, this voluntary enduring of the passion was most acceptable to God as coming from charity. Therefore, it is manifest that Christ's passion was a true sacrifice because he truly offered himself in love. Moreover, as Aquinas says farther on in the same book, the primitive sacrifices of the Holy Fathers were many and various signs of this one true sacrifice, one being prefigured by many in the same way as a single concept or thought is expressed in many words, in order to commend it without tediousness. And as Augustine observes, since there are four things to be noted in every sacrifice, to wit, to whom it is offered, by whom it is offered, what is offered, and for whom it is offered, that the same one true mediator reconciling us with God through the peace sacrifice might continue to be one with him to whom he offered it. Christ offered his, made his offering to God with whom he's one. To the Father with whom he's one. That he might be one with them for whom he offered it. He offered it for us. What he offered was himself. What he might uh, and might himself be the offer and what is offered. He himself offered. He himself offered himself. So, in the mystery of the unity of humanity and deity in God, you have the basis for an act of love on the part of the man Jesus Christ by which he offers to God the Father a sacrifice of love worthy of redeeming us, superabundant, in fact, for all human sins, um, in which he offers himself out of love. Yeah, it's from City of God, Book 10. That's the most important text, I think, in sacrifice, at least in the Western theological tradition. Note that this makes the themes of merit and satisfaction, it qualifies or colors them or interprets them further. How does Christ merit? How does He make atonement? Through charity. Charity is the ground of Christian sacrifice. The physical flesh of Christ, his physical suffering and death, are truly the subject of his offering. God, Christ offers himself in his body, but, and he offers his physical life, I mean his, his human life for us, life of his body. But this springs more fundamentally from his human will and his obedience moved by divine charity. Alright, so he does, part of the offering is the physical sufferings, but the inner essence of it is the love that motivates it. What does Paul say? If I give my body to the flames to be burned and I have not love, I am nothing. Let me read response objection 1. Although the truth answers to the figure in some respects, he's talking about... Oh, he gives the objection that I just gave at the beginning. Human flesh was never offered up in the sacrifices of the old law, which were figures of Christ. In fact, sacrificing human beings to sacrifices in the Old Testament is considered impious. And the Canaanites are said to be ghastly because they offer their children in sacrifice. He says, although the truth answers to the figure in some respects, the truth being the truth of Christ's one true sacrifice, the figures of the Old Testament, Yet it does not in all, since the truth must go beyond the figures. Which, Therefore the figure of this sacrifice in which Christ, Christ's flesh is offered was flesh right fittingly, not the flesh 
of men, but of animals, as denoting Christ. And this is a most perfect sacrifice, first of all, since being flesh of human nature, it was fittingly offered for men, and is partaken of them under the sacrament. We eat the flesh of Christ. Secondly, because being passable and mortal, it was fit for immolation. Christ shed His blood for us. Thirdly, because being sinless, it had virtue to cleanse from sins. Fourthly, because being the offerer's own flesh, it was acceptable to God on account of His charity in offering up His own flesh. And he, he quotes Augustine in De Trinitate again, talking about the fittingness of Christ offering up human, His human body for us. an interesting question. I mean, the other thing you can say is, and this is, um, there's a modern thinker named Girard, uh, a French theorist who was a deconstructionist, literary theorist who converted to Christianity called René Girard. He's written a very interesting critique of sacrifice and he says, in fact, the fact that God, that the Son, that Jesus Christ suffers in his body is a critique of human violence. Just like the Old Testament uh, critiques the sacrifice of human beings. Uh, and the death of, uh, of human beings through cultural and civic violence. So in fact, the sacrificial economy is in fact a, a, a Judeo-Christian critique of human violence. And the fact that Christ dies at the hands of violent and sinful hum humanity is in fact indicative of how this critique is effectuated. God confronts us with the reality of our own violence and our own sinfulness through being subject to us in death. Uh, and, and showing himself victorious over it in love. So in fact, there's a kind of counter-critique of false sacrifice. Uh, that, seems, that seems right. But in any case, that's an aside that's interesting to, to, to uh, study more. René Girard's theories are very interesting. Um, redemption, Article 4. Aquinas interprets the biblical theme of purchasing or buying us back from the devil, well, sorry, buying us back from slavery to sin, in such a way, like Anselm, I would argue, to avoid a theory of the rights of the devil or a merely juridical or contractual vision of the redemption. So, very, very contractual, juridical language becomes very important in the Reformation because of a language of extrinsicism. We don't have to be changed interiorly by grace for, for in a way, you know, to be bought back. But we're extrinsically justified by the death of Christ. I'm talking about from Luther. And so you get ways in which the language of contractual uh, jurisdiction helps... Um, emphasize that it's nothing changes in us. God declares us righteous by a kind of juridical act. We don't have to change. That's the freedom of justification by faith. Now that's not Catholic. We are changed intrinsically by grace. It changes our hearts little by little with lots of our own weaknesses and betrayals and maybe even our own grave malice, etc. Okay. But there really is a conversion of heart and that's the mystery of our faith, that we're called to conversion of heart. So we can't have a purely extrinsic, as it were, juridical or uh, economic metaphor. It has to be, if we're going to use those kind of that kind of language, it's also got to be uh, qualified by a strong sense of the interior uh, conversion of the human being. 
So he quotes 1 Peter 1.18 in the On the Contrary. You were not redeemed with corruptible things as gold or silver from your vain conversion of the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled. The lamb has purchased us. Christ has redeemed us or bought us back from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now he's said to be a curse inasmuch as he suffered upon the tree. So he redeemed us. I answer that man is held captive on, uh, on account of sin in two ways. First of all, by the bondage of sin. Right? So what do we, for Aquinas right away, what does he do? We're enslaved to sin. And he quotes scripture. Since then the devil had overcome man by inducing him to sin, man was subject to the devil's bondage. The devil does have power over us. He doesn't say the devil has rights over us. But just that the devil has power over the human race. It's a finite power, but there's a power of influence. Secondly, as to the debt of punishment. Okay, so we are in debt. Who are we in debt to, though? Not the devil. God. To the payment of which man was held fast by God's justice. We're in debt to the justice of God, for we've offended the God's eternal and infinite righteousness. And this, too, is a kind of bondage, since it savors of bondage for man to suffer what he does not wish, just as it is the, man, uh, the free man's condition to apply himself what he wills. So, Christ's passion was a sufficient and superabundant atonement, or again, satisfaction, for the sin and the debt of the human race. And since this is the case, it was as a price at the cost of which we were freed from both obligations. Notice, to explain how we were purchased back for God, he goes back to satisfaction. How did Christ satisfy for us? Out of love. So you can put it this way. There where we failed to love and therefore fell into the debt of sin, slavery to the devil, and uh, obligation to God that we could not repay, Christ substituted His own obedience and love to purchase us back for God through the, so to speak, um, justifying graces of love and, and atoning charity. You can call this a substitutionary atonement theory. That, that's a phrase you get, especially in Protestant theology. But it's different than, say, substitutionary atonement in Calvin. In Calvin, substitutionary atonement is Christ substitutes Himself to receive the blow or the wrath of God, the punishment that we would have received. So He substitutes Himself to receive uh, the just punishment of God. Now how that's just that an innocent... Aquinas says an innocent man cannot be punished justly for the sake of, an, of, a, of someone else. So it doesn't make sense to say Christ would be counted guilty in our stead. Which means he, Aquinas, when he reads those scriptural passages where he became sin for our sake, he'll say he took on the effects of sin, that is say death and the capacity of suffering, in order to show in and through suffering and death which are consequences of sin, that He loved us. Not that He became sin in the sense that He committed sin, or was counted a sinner, or was Himself counted guilty, which doesn't make sense. But, therefore you can say, does He substitute Himself for us? Yes, in this sense. We were disobedient, He substituted His own obedience for our disobedience. He substituted His love for our lack of love. He substituted His charity for our lack of charity. So it's substitution in a very positive sense. It's substitution as repairing, reparation as repairing. And then just to finish what he says here, for the atonement by which one satisfies for self or another is called the price, metaphorically. Why? Because there's an there's a analogy between 
paying as a form of justice, I think it's called commutative justice, versus payment, or sorry, reparation in the order of honor and love, say between friends or between a hierarchy, like the, the servant who repays the king or something like the parables of Christ denote, which is a kind of distributive justice. There is a sort of analogy there between the justice you owe when you pay someone versus the justice of honor, the justice of love in friendship or in politics. They're only analogous. They're very different. But you can use, therefore, these metaphorical expressions of payment to signify uh, justice, a mystery of justice, a mystery of justice, not something we completely understand. Now, Christ made satisfaction not by giving money or anything of the sort, but by bestowing what was the greatest price himself for us. And so, his passion is called redemption or buying back. Um... Now, just to read quickly this interesting little phrase you see in Reply to Objection 3. Because with regard to God, redemption was necessary for man's deliverance, but not with regard to the devil, the price had to be paid not to the devil, but to God. And therefore Christ is said to have paid the price of our redemption, His own precious blood, not to the devil, but to God. So there he's just putting, again, he's going to Anselm's satisfaction theory to put things in focus when we talk about Christ buying us back from our slavery to the devil. It's not that God owes the devil anything. Right? You don't want to use the ransom. So he says, okay, we use the ransom theory. Christ ransoms us back from sin, death, and the devil. But he doesn't do it by paying the devil something. That would be mythological. Because the devil has no rights over God. The devil is a finite creature and a sinner. He has no rights before God. None of us do. But especially, you know, if, to the extent that we've done something wrong, we don't have any rights. We don't do gain rights by doing something wrong. That would be bizarre. Morally mistaken. But Christ can pay back, as it were, uh, the Father or show satisfaction out of love to the Father in order to ransom us back from sin, death, and devil. It's coherent. Okay, let's go back to question 46, Article 6. Now, first thing I want to talk about is just the. I'm going to talk about the, the sufferings of Christ in the Passion, the suffering and the joy. The su- oh, let's put it this way: the sufferings and consolation of Christ in His Passion. Okay, first let's talk about the acute sufferings of Christ crucified. And I want to talk about this under four aspects, which will take a while. Um, just to note, first of all, the suffering of Jesus in the Passion, and I mean by the Passion, the, everything from His being handed over and betrayed to uh, His being uh, tormented and uh, uh, both mentally and by rejection and by His physical tortures and torments and His rejection by His people, the betrayal of His disciples, the suffering He saw of His mother and eventually his own physical um, demise through carrying the, the, the via crucis and the, and, the, and the crucifixion and death. Uh, in some real sense, the suffering is, in, is, is greater because of his innocence. Uh, Aquinas says this in question 46, article 6, response 5. I'm just going to read that real quick. 
This is response 5. The sufferer's innocence does lessen numerically the pain of the suffering, since when a guilty man suffers, he grieves not merely on account of the penalty, or the punishment, the word in Latin can mean penalty or punishment, but he also grieves because of the crime. Right, we grieve for our crimes. Whereas the innocent man grieves only for the penalty. So in that sense you'd think Christ suffers less because he's innocent. Yet, this pain is more intensified by reason of his innocence insofar as he deems the hurt inflicted to be the more undeserved. Hence it is that even others are more deserving of blame if they do not compassionate him. If they do not have compassion on him. The just perishes, and no man uh, takes it to heart. Quoting Isaiah. Um, what is that? 55. No, 57. Um, secondly, so I mean, Jesus suffered. There's a, it's a sort of human realism there. You know, Jesus, because he's aware of his own innocence, does have a more acute suffering in a certain sense because of that. There's a, the uh, confrontation with the, the real uh, mystery of the injustice. Secondly, the suffering of Christ's passion was greatest in intensity of any, of human, any human suffering. You, so, so Aquinas argues, and you might say, well, it seems like human beings have done enough ill to each other or suffered through illness of various kinds in history that we wouldn't be able to say that. But listen to how he argues for it. Let's go back and read the corpus. This will take us a little time. but On the contrary, it's written on behalf of Christ's person. O all ye that pass by the way and attend, and see if there is any sorrow like unto my sorrow from Lamentations. Well, he says, I answer as we have stated when treating the defects assumed by Christ in question 15. There was true and sensible pain in the suffering Christ which is caused by something hurtful to the body. Also there was internal pain which is caused from the apprehension of something hurtful and this is termed sadness. Christ experienced true physical pain and true mental anguish and sadness in the Passion. And in, in, and in Christ each of these was the greatest in this present life. This arose from four causes. First of all, from the sources of his pain. For the cause of the sensitive pain was the wounding of the body, and this wounding had its bitterness, both from the extent of the suffering already mentioned, and from the kind of suffering, since the death of the crucified is most bitter, because they pierced in nervous and highly sensitive parts, to wit, the hand and feet. Moreover, the weight of the suspended body intensifies the agony. And besides this, there is the duration of the suffering, because they do not die at once like those slain by the sword. The cause of the interior pain was, first of all, all the sins of the human race, for which he made satisfaction by suffering. Hence he ascribes them, so to speak, to himself in the psalm, the words of my sins. This is Psalm 21, where it says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then it goes on to talk about the sins of the person abandoned, saying that Jesus is abandoned over, as it were, to being the representative for our sins, or in some way, uh, living through the mystery of his, of his suffering in view of the atonement of our sins, but he confronts the mystery of our sinfulness, which I'll come back to. Secondly, especially the fall of the Jews and of, all, of the others who sinned in his death, chiefly of the apostles, who were scandalized at his passion. Christ saw himself rejected by his own people. He came to save and abandoned by his disciples, his closest friends. Thirdly, the loss of his bodily life, which is naturally horrible to human nature. So one of the, I mean, that's all one point. 
That's the, the gravity of the suffering. Secondly, the magnitude of his suffering may be considered from the susceptibility of the sufferer as to both body and soul, soul and body. Now this is really where, in a way, he starts to ex- begins to explain the, the distinctness of Christ's suffering. For his body was endowed with a most perfect constitution since it was fashioned miraculously by the operation of the Holy, Sp- Holy Ghost, just as some other things made by miracles are better than others, respecting... Uh, as Christendom says, respecting the wine into which Christ changed the water at the wedding feast. And consequently, Christ's sense of touch, the sensitiveness of which is the reason for our feeling pain, was most acute. His soul, likewise, from its inferior po- interior powers, apprehended most vehemently all the causes of sadness. Now that's very interesting. He says the perfection of the humanity of Jesus caused him to suffer more. First, because his body was more sensitive, because his psychology was more perfect. So the very fact that, for example, Christ is not subject, subject to concupiscence or moral weaknesses the way that all human beings are except himself and Mary. Consequently, he could also be more receptive to the mystery of, of physical pain. He was more, his sensibility is more turned out towards others. It's more limpid, it's more transparent to receptivity. But then he suffers more as a result of that. And his soul, because it's more insightful, because he sees the causes of suffering, is uh, afflicted by more intellectual understanding of the causes of his pain. In other words, he sees into the human hearts that reject him. Right? It's gonna, his insight into the causes of what's happening, into the mystery of what's happening, are in fact going to afflict in some ways greater pain upon him. Thirdly, the magnitude of Christ's suffering can be estimated from the singleness of his pain and sadness. In other sufferers, the interior sadness is mitigated, or even exterior suffering, from some consideration of reason, by some derivation or redundance, from the higher powers into lower. But it was not so with the suffering Christ, because he permitted each of his powers to exercise its proper function. So he's saying there there's a way in which Christ permitted all the consolations of his higher awareness and knowledge to not, God did not will the, the, those consolations to overflow onto the sensitive faculties and even into lo, the, the rational, lower dimensions of the rational and voluntary faculties of Christ. Now this raises interesting questions about how you could simultaneously experience both the consolation of the beatific vision, the consolation of the knowledge of the Father, and the dereliction or agony of the Passion, which is where we're going. Fourthly, the magnitude of the pain of Christ's suffering can be reckoned by this, that the pain and sorrow were accepted voluntarily to the end of man's deliverance from sin. And so, he embraced the amount of pain proportionate to the magnitude of the fruit which resulted therefrom. Christ, who was able to suffer more pain, endured more pain, precisely out of love, as an expression of love, in order to redeem the world by love. Let's read real quickly responses to objection 2 and 4. And he says here, it says, objection two is responding to this: Christ is more morally virtuous, but the more morally virtuous man suffers less because of the nobility of his soul. Therefore, Christ, because of his moral nobility, would have suffered less. 
He says, Moral virtue lessens interior sadness in one way and outward sense of pain in quite another. For it lessens interior sadness directly by fixing the mean as being its proper matter within limits to choose the just mean, to choose the right action. But, as was laid down in the second part of the Summa, moral virtue fixes the mean in the passions, not according to mathematical quantity, but according to quantity of proportion, so that the passion shall not go beyond the rule of reason. And since Stoics held all sadness to be unprofitable, they accordingly believed it to be altogether discordant with reason, and consequently to be shunned altogether by a wise man. But in very truth, some sadness is praiseworthy, as Augustine says. Namely, when it flows from holy love. As, for instance, when a man is saddened over his own or other's sins. Furthermore, it is employed as a useful means of satisfying for sins. According to the saying of the Apostle, the sorrow that is according to God works penance steadfast unto salvation. We should grieve for the sins of others and for our own. We should mourn for the fact that God is not more. As Teresa of Avila says, God has so few friends. And so to atone for the sins of all men, Christ accepted sadness, the greatest in absolute quantity, yet not exceeding the rule of reason. That's really interesting. He says that the sadness of Christ doesn't overcome his reason. Like we can be engulfed in sadness or depression or such not. He says that's not going to happen in Christ. But he does say he has the greatest in absolute quantity. How could that be? Because of his insight into the mystery of human um, lovelessness. Jesus in the mystery of the passion is exposed, as it were, in his mental vision to the depth of our hard-heartedness or our distance from God or our alienation. And he, it fills him with a deep sadness. And, uh, he calls it the greatest in, in quantity, in absolute quantity. But it's not a sadness that overwhelms love, but rather a sadness that is the expression of the profundity of his love. It's a sadness of love. There's a kind of beautiful weight to the sadness of Christ crucified because of the dignity of the love that undergirds that sadness. But moral virtue does not, less, less, uh, does not lessen outward sensitive pain because such pain is not subject to reason but follows the nature of the body. Yet it does lessen indirectly by redundance of the higher powers onto the lower. But this did not happen in Christ's case as stated above. Yeah, I don't know. I may have a, that article I assigned as an option for this afternoon may have an error in it. I'm just thinking about what I say there. But, I mean, it seems like he's even saying the higher uh, the higher vision doesn't even console Christ in any way in his lower faculties. I mean, I think it must in his lower reason. But anyway, reply to objection four. Christ grieved not only... This is, I think, really interesting and important uh, for understanding the, the, the heart of the agony of Christ. What makes Christ suffer most on the cross? Is it physical pain? Is it the fact that his disciples reject him or run away from him with the fact he's rejected? Or, you know, Aquinas says here, it's the grief over human sin. Christ grieved not only over the loss of his own bodily life, but also over the sins of all others. And this grief in Christ surpassed all grief of every contrite heart, both because it flowed from a greater wisdom and charity by which the pang of contrition is intensified, and because he grieved at the one time for all sins. According to Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our sorrows. 
But such was the dignity of Christ's life in the body, especially on account of the Godhead united with it, that its loss, even for one hour, would be a matter of greater grief than the loss of another man's life for howsoever long a time. So the philosopher says that the man of virtue loves his life all the more in proportion as he knows it to be better, and yet he exposes it for virtue's sake. And in like fashion, Christ laid down his most beloved life for the good of charity, according to Jeremiah, I have given my dear soul into the hands of her enemies. Now that's just really important because what does he say is the, the principle of Christ's deepest agony. Uh, I just said the cause. The cause is that he, he considers human sinfulness. He confronts it. But what's the cause? What's the principle? His, his wisdom, he says, and his charity. So that's interesting. Because it means the privileges of grace in the human intellect and will of Christ are in some way the source of his greater suffering. He suffers because he loves more. And he suffers because he knows more. So, and he says he, he sees all our sins at once, which you know suggests the beatific vision. Which so it suggests that in some ways, because he has the vision on the cross, he his suffering is intensified, not lessened, because he peers into the mystery of human iniquity through the medium of the divine glory of God. He sees the mystery of eternal loss, the mystery of our sin, alienation from God, potential damnation, and he confronts it and suffers from it but not out of lovelessness but actually out of the intensity of his love which increases the sense of contrition or the agony on our behalf now he goes on in question 7 and 8 to say something very important look at just look at the questions of the articles article 7 and 8 of question 46 whether Christ suffered in his whole soul and then look at the next one whether Christ's entire soul enjoyed blessed fruition during the passion what's the answer going to be both times yes right now that's clever isn't it again I mean Aquinas knows how to not oppose things right I mean he's things are both things are compatible under different aspects Christ is both suffering agony in his whole soul through the mystery of the passion. He's also suffering consolation in his whole soul through the mystery of the passion. It's lovely. I mean, I'll, I, think it's, I think it works. But let's, let's just look at what he does here. This is Article 7. On the contrary, it is written, On behalf of Christ, my soul is filled with evils. From Psalm uh, 87. Upon which the gloss in the Bible... You know the gloss in the medievals have like little glosses next to the text. When he says the gloss, he means the commentary that you would find in the common medieval Bible. It's like the crib notes. It's like, as the Jerusalem Bible says, you know. Uh, not with vices, but with woes, whereby the soul suffers with the flesh, or with evils, that's to say, uh, of a perishing people by, com- uh, by having compassion on them. But his soul would not have been filled with these evils except he, he had suffered in his whole soul, therefore Christ suffered in his entire soul. Okay. Now this is where he distinguishes. I answer that a whole is so termed with respect to its parts, but the parts of the soul are its faculties. So the powers of the soul. So then the whole soul is said to suffer in so far as it is active, uh, afflicted as to its essence or as to all its faculties. Now there's two ways, therefore, you can say that the whole soul suffers. Either because all the faculties suffer, like, for example, you're suffering intellectually, you're suffering in your heart, you're suffering emotionally, you're suffering physically. Or, 
it's that you're suffering, say, physically, and it afflicts the whole of your soul. You may say, well, if I suffer physically, Father, I'm going to be suffering emotionally and intellectually and voluntarily. Yes, I understand that. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, it's not just you're suffering physically and it affects the rest of your faculties, but you're suffering physically because the person you love most just betrayed you and they just uh, told you something spiritually that uh, afflicts you in your will uh, and you just found out that something you believe for a long time is false. Right, then all your faculties have an object of suffering. But it must be borne in mind that the faculty of the soul can suffer in two ways. First of all, by its own passion, and this comes of its being afflicted by its proper object. So your sensitive life is afflicted because you suffer, say, a fall and break your arm. And this comes to be of its being afflicted in its proper object. Thus, sight may suffer from a superabundance of the visible object. Intense light can hurt the eye. In another way, a faculty suffers by a passion in the subject on which it's based. As sight suffers when the sense of touch in the eye is affected. You know, you get a piece of sand in your eye. That's different. Right? It's not that you're seeing a bright light. It's that the, the organ that would see the bright light has a piece of sand, a grit. that's bothering your eye. So then, we say that if the, if the soul be considered with respect to its essence, it is evident that Christ's whole soul suffered. For the whole soul's whole essence is allied with the body, so that it's entire in the whole body, and it's in every part. Your soul, wherever you have your body's alive, you know, your soul is in your little pinky, right? Because everything in you is enlivened by your soul. Consequently, when the body suffered, and was disposed to separate from the soul, the whole soul suffered. But if we consider the whole soul according to its faculties, speaking thus of the proper passions of the faculties, he suffered indeed as to all his lower powers. He means the passions, the emotions, the physical sensations. Because in all the soul's lower powers those operations are but temporal. There was something to be found which was a source of woe to Christ. But Christ's higher reason did not suffer thereby on the part of its object which is God, who was the cause not of grief, but rather of delight and joy to the soul of Christ. I'm going to come back to this. Nevertheless, all the powers of Christ's soul did suffer according as any faculty is said to be affected as regards the subject because all the faculties of Christ's soul were rooted in its essence to which suffering extended when the body whose act it is suffered. So he's saying Christ suffers physically and emotionally the grief of the passion and the intellect, meanwhile, the reason and the will are consoled by the knowledge and love of God, in what he calls the heights of the reason. Nevertheless, the intellect and will are shaken or, or, or suffering insofar as the subject who suffers is the person of Christ, physically. So just like, I mean, analogous as... You could be loving, you could love and worship God, and and have a sort of even the grace of sweet communion with God while being grievously ill physically. So you could suffer physical illness uh, and emo and pain and the emotional distress that goes with grave physical illness while experiencing the delight of resting in God spiritually. Now, is that common? That the, the sense of consolations come from the spiritual life? Not necessarily. And he's saying here, Christ was withheld sensitive consolations. But he still had the intellectual consolation 
of the knowledge and love of God. Now what he's leaving out there, what he's not focusing on in this particular question is, what about the intellectual objects that cause suffering? Right, so it's one thing to say he suffers physically and he suffers emotionally and he gets consolation meanwhile in the heights of his intellect through knowledge and love. Fine, that's the case. But it's also the case that he suffers not just physically and emotionally, but as he said in the previous article, he's also suffering by the proper objects of the intellect and will, spiritually, insofar as he's suffering uh, from his rejection, uh, his disciples who abandon him, and confronting, as he said in the previous article, especially the gravity of human sinfulness. And he said, notice he did say what was the principle of his suffering, of the worst agony, confrontation with sin, his wisdom and his charity in the intellect and will. So he's, if you put the two articles together, he's got sufferings that come from the proper objects of the mind and will. Through his own wisdom and love, he's confronting the mystery of our need for salvation. And it causes him interior uh, agonizing grief of a spiritual sort as well as the physical and emotional pain. But at the same time, he is in communion with the Father and knows the Father and has this spiritual love of God that fills his soul with consolation. And that's where he's going to go in the next article. Whether Christ's entire soul enjoyed blessed fruition during the Passion. Said Contra, Damascene says... Christ God had permitted his flesh to do and to suffer what was proper to it in like fashion since it belonged to Christ's soul inasmuch it was blessed by the beatific vision or the immediate vision of God to enjoy fruition his passion did not impede fruition fruition here fruitio means delight or joy did Christ experience joy in the cross yes Catherine of Siena talks about the joy of Christ crucified because he experienced the victory of divine love he experienced his communion with the Father. He experienced the joy of giving his life for us. He experienced the freedom of the freedom of charity that he could freely give his life for us. There's a deep, radiant freedom and joy of Christ in the mystery of the crucifixion. That at least is an interpretation that Thomas Aquinas and Catherine of Siena hold. And that you'd find, if you want to read something nice on this, very, uh, if you want to follow this up, something, I mean, I tried to talk about it in my essay. Another, another thing, I put, I put it in the units. Uh, Gary Goulagrange has a book called The Savior and His Love for Us, which you'd obligatorily have in your libraries. The Savior and His Love for Us. And there's a chapter in there on, I think it's called The Peace, or something like The Peace of the, jo- the Joy of Christ and the Cross, or the Consolation of Christ Crucified, something. And he talks about this. So I think you could say, say, say it represents more the Dominican tradition. We're going to contrast this a little bit with our friend Balthazar this afternoon. Are we having a session this afternoon? Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the dereliction theologies and the descent into hell. Okay, so this... Anyway, let's go on and read the, the, the corpus. I answer that, as stated above, the whole soul can be understood both according to its essence and according to all its faculties. If it be understood according to its essence, then in his whole soul, then his whole soul did enjoy fruition. The same reason his whole soul suffered is the same reason his whole soul enjoyed fruition. Because the faculties, just as you can suffer from the body that affects the suffering of the whole soul, that causes the whole soul to suffer, so the, the intellect and the will being enlightened and consoled by charity affects the whole soul. 
inasmuch as it is the subject of the higher part of the soul to which it belongs to enjoy the Godhead, so that as passion by reason of, so that as passion by reason of the essence is attributed to the higher part of the soul, so on the other hand, by reason of the superior part of the soul, fruition is attributed to the essence. Let me reread it because I'm lost now. If it be understood according to its essence, then his whole soul did enjoy fruition inasmuch as it is the subject of the higher part of the soul, right, to which it belongs to enjoy the Godhead. Right, so the higher part of the soul, the, the intellect and will, in its heights are being, uh, are enjoying the mystery of the, of the immediate vision of God. And this affects the subject, which is the soul, so that the whole soul is consoled via the consolation of those two faculties. But if we take the whole soul as comprising all its faculties, thus his entire soul certainly did not enjoy fruition. Not directly indeed, because fruition is not the act of any one part of the soul, nor by any overflow of glory, because since Christ was still upon the earth, there was no overflowing of glory from the higher part into the lower, nor from the soul into the body. Now this is what I was talking about yesterday, the economic regulation of the beatific vision in the earthly Christ. He has a knowledge of the Father. He knows He's the Son. He knows the Holy Spirit. He sees the mystery of our sinfulness. He knows He's giving His life for us. But it doesn't console Him psychologically. That the glory is withheld in the earthly life. It's in the heights of his intellect. We might call it the higher intuition of Christ. There's an awareness of who he is. And it does give him some spiritual consolation. But it doesn't take away the reality of his human suffering and pain as a member of our human race. Now that he's glorified and resurrected, Christ experiences consolation from his beatific vision that overflows into his sensitive psychology. Christ is psychologically consoled as man by the vision of God. He was not in the mystery of his earthly life. And since, on the contrary, the soul's higher part was not hindered in its proper acts by the lower, it follows that the higher part of the soul enjoyed fruition perfectly while Christ was suffering. So he, he says there, on the, on the other hand, even though he's still suffering, he can still feel the joy of the beatific vision, the joy of knowing the Father. And he says they're not he says in the reply to objection 1, the joy of fruition is not directly opposed to the grief of the passion because they do not have the same common object. Right? So, it's one thing to have your uh, wrists pierced by nails or to have the high priest say to you, uh, would you save yourself? It's another thing and mock you. Right? It's another thing uh, to see the Father. It's one thing to see the mystery of human sinfulness with acuity to confront the horror of our iniquity through his infused knowledge and his beatific vision and to suffer from his wisdom and love the confrontation with the acuity of human sinfulness. It's another thing to be consoled by the object of knowledge that his death has overcome the world, the, the sin of the world. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Right? In John's Gospel, he is of good cheer the night before his passion. Good cheer is some interesting English anachronism, but I mean it means something like joy or consolation, some fruition in the heights of his soul that can coexist with a deep sense of sorrow in the mystery of seeing human sinfulness. Right, so there's this, these differing objects that are 
both affecting the faculties of intellect and will and the lower faculties in differing ways simultaneously. Grief of the passion belongs to the essence of the soul by reason of the body whose form the soul is, whereas the joy of fruition belongs to the soul by reason of the faculty in which it is subjected. Let me finish briefly with this. I want to consider different objects of Christ's suffering. Just to, This is a recapitulation. It's not going to be something new. But just to, this is from the essay that is optional. On the, or maybe it's, a, it's optional. Yeah. Um, but which Shmerian uh, gave you all? Yeah, I think you did. Somebody showed it to me. Um, and this is just an, a very imperfect thought experiment as a way of trying to read what Aquinas is saying here about uh, three different, we might say, three different levels of suffering in Christ. And the question of, in each case, did his beatific vision and his prophetic knowledge, or his infused knowledge, cause him to be consoled, or did it, or did it augment his suffering? So, I mean, I, mean, I basically am just saying, I think from these texts, we can talk about, first, uh, a suffering of his physical body, along with an emotional agony, that, that are due to physical torment. So, I mean, I'm talking about, first of all, what it means to suffer for Christ, not psychologically, first and foremost, but, um, I mean, not from, from, as it were, spiritual causes, but primarily just from the physical agony of the, of the passion. I mean, to be executed, to be tormented, and ex- tortured and executed is physically ag- agonizing. And here, I mean, I think the vision of God in the heights of Christ's soul as an object of knowledge it would in no way alleviate the reality of the physical and, and spiritual agony because when you die it's physically and spiritually agonizing and that would not have been alleviated or lessened uh, or it would not have been as su- taken formally as such you know he, he's undergoing human t- in fact as Aquinas says because of the perfection of his humanity and the acuity and the perfection of his psychology his sense of psychology he's going to feel physical anguish and pain more deeply than we do uh, however, the effects of that upon the soul, and are, in a certain sense, the way he would live that would be mitigated by the experience um, of the Father's will, by the knowledge that he's living this for the salvation of the world, and by the consolation of the beatific vision. So, I mean, I think the higher knowledge is going to mitigate some way the physical suffering. I don't mean by that it's formally lessened. He, he suffers formally and even more perfectly, if we may use that phrase, than we would. But on the other hand, he's experiencing at the same time this fruition or this consolation. Okay, so there's a way in which they're not working at cross purposes, but there's slightly contrary effects happening. Now, secondly, you can talk about his inner psychological desolations or his spiritual suffering properly speaking not simply because he's physically suffering but from spiritual and emotional causes now what I mean by here is um, his sense of sadness or loneliness his sense of rejection his concern for his mother or his for his disciples 
uh, and even his sense of abandonment by God in the sense that he could have the emotional experiences of abandonment by God no feeling of sensible consolation John of the Cross talks about this in um, a passage in um, I think it's the book with the title Carmel uh, Mount Carmel the scent of Mount Carmel yeah he talks just briefly about the desolations of the spiritual life, but he says these happened archetypally to Christ crucified, who experienced no consolation in his sensitive life in the cross, but only bitterness and dryness and, uh, and agonies. Okay. Well, is that compatible with what Aquinas is saying? Uh, arguably. I mean, maybe. John's, John of the Cross was a Thomist, and he has his own interpretation here. But it, or at least he has his own, his own personal theology here, but it seems compatible with Aquinas is saying when he says that in terms of the, there was no overflow of the beatific vision onto the lower faculties, meaning the sense of psychology. So Christ could have experienced a great dryness, and if you, we, we could put it this way, a kind of psychological experience of the, of the absence of God in his sensitive faculties. In nowhere to rest, so to speak. Um, and yet, I think here too, if he had the beatific vision, the immediate vision, there is going to be a higher spiritual peace and serenity and sense of union with God, the Father, that's going to console him. So that even if there was a dryness to his psychological experience of death and the crucifixion, even if there was a kind of withdrawal of any consolation of the spiritual, of the sensitive faculties, and there was this positive presence of emotional uh, desolation because of his loneliness, his solitude, because of the sense of his abandonment by his disciples, his rejection by the people, and his um, uh, concern for his blessed mo- for the blessed mother, etc. Nevertheless, in this ac- in this acute dry sorrowfulness, you're going to also have the consolation of union with the, wa- the will of the Father. So again, in the second case, I think there's a certain kind of um, not pure contradiction, certainly, but contrary influences on the soul of Christ. But in the third case, the object is now not his own physical suffering and death, nor his own emotional deprivations, but rather nothing about him, but rather something about us. That's to say, the suffering in Christ stemming not from his own experience or an objective knowledge of his own deprivations, but rather due to an extraordinary awareness of the spiritual ills of others. And it seems to me in this case... Christ's knowledge can be a cause of more intense suffering rather than a source of consolation. So that in this respect particularly, his beatific vision and his prophetic knowledge cause him to suffer more and in fact are the condition that he can, sort of as it were, in the the deepest freedom of love, choose to redeem us. Because he can see into each of us or, or into the mystery of human uh, rupture from God or alienation and choose to love where we have not loved choose to give his life for us choose to give his own grace of life to us as head of the church I say he can choose us as members of his mystical body despite our own alienation from God and so I mean it seems to me that his vision during the passion and crucifixion allows Christ to know our human hearts better than we do to perceive sin not only as a direct refusal of love, but also in its subsequent consequences that we often don't perceive. And he doesn't just see the hard-heartedness of sin or 
uh, more acutely, but he sees the consequences, the mystery of perdition, the mystery of damnation, right? So he's confronting that. This is the way Matthew Levering puts it in his book, um, Sacrifice and Community, on page 80. Christ's suffering has the intensity then of a dark night in which the horror of the darkness of sin is finally and perfectly exposed in Christ's soul by contrast to the glorious light of the divine goodness, which Christ also knows. So his beatific vision allows him both to know the bright light of the divine goodness, but also to see the darkness of the human, of the world of men in, uh, in light of that goodness. It is only by contrast to this light of divine goodness that darkness is intelligible. Christ bears interiorly the darkness in his anguish over the sins of each one of us, but it is crucial to note that he can only bear this darkness fully because of his simultaneous light by which he knows God. So, I think the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, is ultimately not about Christ not seeing the Father or not knowing God, but about Christ being uh, abandoned by the Father to the confrontation with our sins and the, the darkness of, uh, of not His separation from God, but our separation from God. Uh, the real potential despair and separation from God that Christ perceived at Calvary were not in Himself, but were in us. And I think His response to that is uh, to bring in the Kingdom of God from the cross. You know, after he cries out in Matthew and Mark the cry of dereliction, in both of them he then has the cry, the, the, the vocal cry from the cross, and then he dies. And I see that cry as a cry of triumph, which is also the reading of some fathers of the church. I'm taking that from people like Origen. It's a cry of triumph. It's the cry of decision. He confronts the agony of sin, the, the mystery of sin. It causes a deep agony, and he confronts it with the cry of the victory of love, and he gives his life and dies. And that commutes or communicates life to the world. It's an interpretation. It's a way of understanding the mystery of the crucifixion that is permissible, certainly, and I think grounded in the, the classical Thomistic tradition. But this is a mystery you spend your life thinking about, and I'm just trying to you know, show some of the parameters here as Aquinas conceives them and invite you to continue to think about this and read about it and pray about it. Our help is in the name of the Lord.